Welcome back to Extreme Makeover. This is the kind of extreme makeover that everybody should be getting. Instead of going to the beauty parlor, getting your um, your uh, plastic surgery or, or all redoing your house, this is the true show that you should all be tuning into. It's the ultimate interior design show. <laughs> this is how to make a Brahma Vihara. How to make a mansion full of light that flies as well, that transports you around, that goes with you everywhere, that takes you everywhere. So we have to go back to the basic engineering of this. Before you can fly and before you can uh, finish off this dwelling, this mansion, the mansion of the gods, you have to have the basics. All the engineering has to be in place. So we left it yesterday. We spent quite a bit of time on uh, conceit and um, uh, humility. And today we'd like to talk about contentment and ease, being easy to uh, be not demanding. So contentment is such a blessing itself. This is the primary irritant in life, isn't it? Is to never be content. Now that doesn't mean that, now this has been very often misinterpreted in spiritual um, circles, that somehow you should be content with whatever your situation is in, in terms of your interior uh, life. That is not what is meant. Contentment uh, is to be to do with simplifying your life and not making any extra stress and hassle in your life. So it's not that you're content with your unfinished interior business. This, uh, this is called right effort. And the Buddha is quite strongly advocating that you have sincere aspirations and make effort, strong effort, effort which sometimes makes you sweat it might even make you cry from time to time. So, but that is uh, okay with the Buddha. But to sweat and cry over externals, the attempt to accumulate things in life and to manipulate life and to get everybody's admiration, to, to seek fame and wealth and success uh, and all of these things is, uh, from the Buddhist point of view, a misappropriation of your energies. But so this contentment is asking yourself, can I feel like I have enough? Now, monks and nuns are supposed to be examples of this. And so they are asked by the Buddha to dwell in simplicity and uh, give some visible evidence to the world that a human can be quite happy, well, and content, and still living in simplicity is not accumulating these things. So these are kind of the models or examples that the Buddha sets forth. Lay people have a different world than the monks. They have to make a living. They have to provide for themselves and their families, etc. But that uh, need not be without end. There's a, a saying or a quote from Emerson talking about the nature of the world 
things are in the saddle and ride mankind. And so now some of you have not been on a horse before, but that's what it means. Um, when you get, you, a horse has to bear its rider. And you should not be ridden by your things. You should be riding on the things. But the things, he's talking probably in the 19th century in the West, and it's, it was an early stage. Things are even more in the saddle now and weighing us down and making our lives hard. And there's a constant message in the air to get more, to accumulate more, etc. So this has to be, you have to make your decisions about where you want to put your time and energy. What is the best return on investment? It doesn't mean that you as a layperson can afford to ignore the uh, economic realities of things. You still have a house, a household, and you still need to eat and, and take care of yourself. And, but you have to decide, well, how much time and energy and thought and worry, concern am I going to put into this? And how much am I going to direct these energies to the interior condition? So the interior condition is, is by far the most important. And uh, lots of uh, wisdom schools and religious teachings say this again and again. Uh, what does it profit if, if a man <laughs> to, if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? Uh, so that's from the New Testament. In, in Old English, profiteth. <laughs> so... Uh, they were right on, right on. Uh, you, you cannot afford to lose your soul. You'll have nothing left, even though you've gained the world. So we are also on that same wavelength. So this is about contentment and contentment is a feeling, which is just wonderful. It's a way, it's a setting of the mind and uh, there's no way to come to it except through the mind and to search for it and to find it and to taste it and then try to find your way back to it and then to catch yourself when it's gone, to catch yourself again and again, say, I'm not content, I'm discontent. Where is my contentment gone? This sense of contentment is just the most beautiful experience. It's, it's the true, truly being on a holiday you know, this word holiday is really just the words holy day. That is the experience of sacred rest. So now, of course, we think it's a, a surfing day that you experience excitement on, this, on, the, on the ski slopes or surfing or going to Disneyland or something. But that is, of course, a very shallow and trivial uh, kind of experience compared to the true rest that comes to the emotional structure on a holy day, and the holy day cannot be experienced except through contentment. And uh, I think the Christians may be having their little holy day today as well, and uh, uh, good on you, but make sure that it is actually holy, sacred, and content, and not something else. Now, that's a big ask, and one of the reasons why we're even giving this retreat through through these media is the the problem of the pandemic uh, it's a very unusual time on the planet uh, there's a lot of social isolation as as well 
But in the midst of all of this, this is a possible, this is where you have to go to find this. The, the title of this whole retreat is called Serenity, Warmth, and Friendliness in the Midst of This Winter. Now, it's only winter in the Northern Hemisphere, by the way. So to my friends in Australia and New Zealand, in the midst of summer, serenity, friendliness, and warmth in the midst of summer for the Southern Hemisphere. This is possible even in the midst of chaos and social isolation. And that's when it's truly a spiritual cultivation and not merely the externals. So this is what we have to aspire to. And this is why it's a radical interior design, a re redesign of everything. If you're not, if you don't understand this, then you, you really need to become interested and find your way to this because it is a radical transformation of life and the, the feeling of life. Easily satisfied. So when you do um, get the contentment and these easily satisfied is more or less redundant. You know, to be content is to be easily satisfied when you get enough. So this is something that monks are coached on all the time is, you know, right at your ordination, you're given, you're told to be content with four things. You should be satisfied if you get four things. And as you, you just, you've just put on the robes and this is part of the ceremony four things, robes from the garbage heap. <laughs> so if you can go to the garbage heap and get some, some old castaway clothes, get it, wash it up, sew it together, dye it, you should be content with that. That's, it's enough. You might get better. You might even get silk robes, but if you don't, if you have to get them from the dump, then that's fine. You're okay. Dwelling at the foot of a tree, uh, you should be satisfied with that. If that's all you can get, it's okay. Dwelling at the, basically you're camping. <laughs> now that doesn't work so well in Canada, um, unless you have a really good down bag. <laughs> but in India at the time, it could be a little chilly and uh, uncomfortable, but dwelling at the foot of a tree is, is enough. Food collected on alms round. So you just walk through villages and if people are kindly and generous, they will come out and give you food and whatever the food is that you receive, you should be content with that. You might get very nice food. People might invite you to, to have lunch at their place and so forth, but that's not necessary to be satisfied. So you are to be satisfied with food collected just walking door to door and people put various things in your bowl and the days when when you could pick and choose and you had delicate tastes are gone. They're over. Food is to keep your body going and that's all. And if you can be happy with that, you have reached a stage uh, which is much more stable than if you have a lot of preferences and like to pick and choose. And the last is medicine, the condition of our body. Uh, this is an endless search for security and prevention, you know, especially while we're in this time of the, of the vast flu pandemic. And you can see all of this desperate 
hope for vaccinations and so forth. But the Buddha says, well, even if you get fermented cow urine <laughs> for medicine, now I actually haven't tried fermented, it has never gone to that stage, but it seemed to be a, a bit of a cure-all at the time. I'm sure it wasn't, um, didn't cure everything, but you're supposed to be content with that as a monk. You can't always get good medical care. And you can imagine in the time of the Buddha, you know, if you had a toothache, it's not, not easy. The, I what sort of dentists were around at that time? I think they just, either you get the thing pulled out or, or you suffer. So this is pretty minimal. This is advice to monks. So you can also, in your own life, you can sort of take that information and say, you know, what's my bottom line here? What, what, what's good enough here? What's my, what am I content with? And people have, it's very interesting, even people with wealth, you know, some of them choose to live a simple life and they, they see what their bottom line is in terms of their, their own basics, their own food, clothing, medicine, shelter. So to learn this sense of satisfaction and ease in life, this helps you drop the sense of fear and insecurity as well. So this is, the, the, the heart is burdened by fear and insecurity, and you cannot possibly hope for the feeling of loving kindness if you haven't got a sense of ease and security in life. The heart comes out from behind these heavy clouds and shines. So this is what the Buddha is, uh, is telling you the kind of the strategies behind this in order for this to happen. We come to the next phrase, and this is one called unburdened with duties. And this is just one translation that happens to be uh, the translation that we use in uh, the Ajahn Chah's sort of chanting books, unburdened with duties. I've never been quite satisfied with that. And there are about six or eight translations of this word, apakicho. Um, it's kicha is duties and um, a is the kind of the negative thing, not with duties. I, I do not, and this is the nature of translating the Pali. It's never just a word thing. You have to ask yourself, what could possibly, what, what could be meant by this? Since part of even being a monk is that you have duties. You are assigned duties. You have duties to the Sangha and they are they really expect you in the Sangha to live up to those duties. When you get assigned to do some sweeping or cleaning up things or managing things or even giving a Dhamma talk, etc., that's a duty and it's to be done. It's not, not to be neglected. So how is it that somebody's supposed to be unburdened by duties or unburdened with duties or with few duties? So these are the... Uh, there's at least six different translations, and I think none of them actually get to what is meant here. It, meant, it means that don't be unnecessarily busy. You see this in human nature. Humans are, well, they ask each other, uh, you know, how are you? Oh, keeping busy, keeping busy. Ah, good. See, it's kind of like a, an assertion of pride that you're, that you're busy, that you're keeping busy. And this is a diversion. Why are you keeping busy? Actually, the deep issue is you are existentially <laughs> concerned about death. 
if we have, if we can go deep enough in you, it's the avoidance of the fact of your mortality <laughs> is keeping you busy. Now, it doesn't mean that you should not do things, uh, monks, including the Buddha. I mean, who is more energetic and put out more effort than the Buddha to organize things, etc. It's not, it's the, it's the motivation behind your, the duties that you're taking up, the, the activities. And we see this kind of existential, people take up these crazy projects of building a, a castle in the mountains when they're, when they really are just basically ordinary people and have no use for a castle. Why do they do this? They take on these projects. And that is to distract themselves from the hollowness of, of just straight existence. And so you have to examine in your own life, like what are you displacing by all of these frantic activities? Why are you, why do you have three different clubs that you have to go to? Why are you setting up all these hobbies and so forth? It's because you don't feel comfortable with your own state of being. Loving kindness is, welcomes you to celebrate a state of being without having to be distracted or busy. But it doesn't mean that anybody on this planet gets away with no duties or sort of commitments. This is not what this means. It means that you are not trying to avoid yourself through busyness. Yeah. Don't you be a busyness man. <laughs> businessman. What does that mean? A busyness man. This is like, what? You're a busyness man? A busyness woman? No. Um, so frugal in their ways, I think this has to be taken carefully, frugality. There's two kinds of situations, not, not squandering. And that, so why do people live like that? Why do people squander? That's also a, there's something wrong inside. When you have to affirm your existence by uh, displaying money or throwing money away or collecting things. This is also another form. It's very parallel. It's right next to this other term, this, uh, the, the problem of being, keeping busy as the same problem as keeping spending, keeping frivolous spending, useless spending, all of this kind of stuff. This is just another way to distract yourself and or confirm some sort of illusion. Um, that you have money and you, you will you will spend it, you will show so, so forth. But one should not go to the other extreme of being a miser. This is, I would say, it's. I'm not sure which one is worse, miserliness or spend thrifts. Um, there's a proper relationship, and this is the proper relationship to money and possessions. And the Buddha is sort of he, he defines this, you know, remember that he had actually had a period of, of his life before he established the monastic order where he was, he was being miserly with his own food, his own taking care of his own body. It was, he, he gave that up as very self-abusive and ignoble. But he, what had he done before that? He had been in a palace situation where there was a lot of overindulgence. He talks about the nature of the food and how good the, even the servant's food was this special type and 
lots of dancing girls and parties and all of this kind of stuff. He is abandoning those extremes and he's trying to teach people also that there's a middle path between these things and that this either ext extremes in either direction show you there's something's wrong inside. That this is a distraction, you're, you're distracted by shallow uh, things or even what we would call phobias or uh, uh, neurosis, mental health issues. You'll see this also in uh, uh, hoarding. This is where, in a sense, when you look at what a hoarder has in their house, it's, a, it's huge piles of valueless objects. It's not like a, a collection. It's just absurd, uh, but they're, they're somehow seeing value in these valueless things and filling their place. So, so they're, they're, they're misers in some ways. Uh, so this is, these are all kind of forms of sickness that you have to get over. And so frugality is actually the wrong word. Frugality, uh, it's more like a sense of the appropriate, just a sense of the appropriate in your relationship to material things, into what you need and the difference between what you need and what you want. So this is very, very important. You, you may be wondering how this all ties into loving kindness, but if you don't have these basics, you don't have the spirit of loving kindness. Because what is the spirit of loving kindness is the well-wishing for the safety and ease of, of yourself and other beings. And if one is plagued with this un, unbalanced, inappropriate relationship to material objects, food, clothing, shelter, medicine, the accumulation of all of these things, uh, relationships, etc. If you don't have a sense, a balanced and appropriate sense of this, you're not going to be happy. So we are wishing you that you may be well, happy, peaceful. How are you going to be well, happy, and peaceful if you don't understand the relationship to these objects? So this is part of like the questioning of your own relationship to these things. And lots of people have very deep issues with this. So this is a, a very deep therapy as well. The metta sutta is something to be, to be deeply explored. And if, it's, if the heart is not coming out from behind the clouds and radiating, then you have to go back into the beginning of this sutta and examine, so what are the prerequisites that I haven't fulfilled here? What is it that I haven't done? What is it that I haven't understood? So, it's well worth going over again and again. And if you, when you look at it simply, these little words in this translation, so this is why I do things like this 10 days of talking on, on metta and, and the metta sutta, is that to take each of these phrases, each of these words, and really open them up because there's a huge content in there. It's very easy to be misunderstood. And you see now, you see how many times people translate these words and still may not quite catch what is actually meant. How do you get the meaning, by the way? For me, and if you've watched other talks, I always go to the similes and the kind of, these similes are like pictures uh, that the Buddha gives in order to illustrate what he's after. And I also go back to so I'm explaining this, 
by going back to the specific injunctions that he gives to the monks about such things as food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. He's very specific there. So you, you have to know some other aspects. In order to understand this sutta, you have to go out and look around in the other teachings of the Buddha and import that back in order to understand what these... These are mere words. They were the conventional words of the time. And most of them, or many of them, were given new meanings by the Buddha. So you can't even look up in a Pali dictionary what is the meaning of this, because it's not the meaning that was culturally given at the time. It's something infused with meaning by the larger context of the Eightfold Path. When we started out, remember that one of the qualities that you needed to, you needed to know the path of peace, you needed to actually know the Eightfold Path before you genuinely cultivate this loving kindness. It's not removable from the Eightfold Path. You will not succeed actually in having radiant universal loving kindness if you have not uh, if you're not acquainted with the ideals of the the Eightfold Path. So we should go to what's next, peaceful and calm. And this is something we'll talk about more later as well, is that one of the marks of loving kindness is peace. And not everybody knows that. They might think it's exciting, but it's actually very peaceful. And uh, the other exercises that the Buddha gives, such as breath meditation and so forth, they, they play back, they play very nicely with each other. Love and peace play very nicely. The serenity that you cultivate through breath meditation or even reading the suttas and reflecting on them, listening to Dhamma talks, sometimes this induces a sense of peace, are calming as well. So this loving kindness is the heart, is a kind of a warm heart within and the peaceful heart within. So this cannot really be separated from this experience of exceptional peace. If you cultivate it, you will feel a kind of transcendent sense of peace coming upon you. Why is it? Why is it peaceful? Because fear is gone. So the mind is disturbed almost continuously by some level of fear. You need to inquire deeply. You're almost always in a state of kind of existential anxiety at some level, deeply, unless you've really done some practice and then that can go away and what what it replaces it is this peace, you know. You in your ordinary life might have experienced peace from time to time just when you forgot to worry, forgot to be anxious. Occasionally that happens, you just can't keep it up all the time and then you feel this kind of overwhelming sense of peace descending. This uh, is called a, kind of an epiphany or a, a mystical moment and unfortunately, people don't understand what happened to them. But this is what I was saying, but that the Buddha is not a mystic. He's actually a very lucid teacher of the building blocks of peace and love, that the profound sense of well-being in life. He's not interested in being obscure. He has the capacity not to be. And so this is what he's giving you some 
clear instructions about what this feels like if you can accomplish this and to encourage you to move towards peace as well. So this is something you have to put into the, the, the mix in order to get this, the good results out of this. So I'll, I'll leave this for today. This is called Extreme Makeover.